Fundraising everywhere. 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 Great to have you all here today um, at our webinar, History of Fundraising with Sophie and Roger. I have seen we have about 350 fundraisers registered for today, which is very exciting. Um, it's so lovely to have you here, and I can see that you're all starting to say hello in the chat box. Um, let us know where you're tuning in from. Um, so if you haven't already, please do, yeah, pop your name, um, where you're working in the chat box, um, where you're tuning in from, and, you know, what's the weather like where you are. Um, I'm tuning in from a very grey and miserable northwest France. It's not very nice here. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Alex Aguidis and I'm Head of Growth Marketing here at Fundraising Everywhere. If you haven't heard of Fundraising Everywhere before, we're an online community who provide professional development, peer support and networking for fundraisers and future charity leaders. We hold free monthly webinars like today's um, as well as lots of fundraising conferences throughout the year. So if you'd like to be updated on our latest content and events, um, you can subscribe to our email by the button just below your screen. Big red button. Now, on to today, that's why we're all here. Those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. This was a very apt summary given of today's session by the team. Fundraising has a history full of innovation and stagnation, inspiration and scandal. But as fundraisers, we know relatively little about our own history. If you ask a fundraiser what has come before, you might hear answers like, we tried that once in 1983 and it didn't work. Or we've been doing that since 1983 and it worked. So please don't change it. But if you look more closely, you can find examples of innovations that appear to have been introduced in the 80s or 90s that were actually pioneered in the 1880s or 1790s. What are the gems lurking in the cupboards of our past have we yet to discover? Today, our panel will take a look at fundraising's history to explore questions that can help guide our future. And I'm thrilled to welcome them here today. We have Marina Jones, Deputy Development Director at the English National Opera, freelance fundraising professional, Asma Hussein. Hey guys. Rodri Davies, founder and director of think tank, Why Slant Free Matters. Giovanna Bonora, UNHCR private partnerships and philanthropy fundraiser. Hello. Meredith Niles, chair of Sophie and Mark Phillips, owner of Blue Frog Fundraising. Now, it's so great to have you all here. Uh, thank you very, very much for, for making time um, on this on this lunchtime session. Having been a fundraiser myself for a decade before I came to Fundraising Everywhere, I'm just as excited as, as the rest of the audience to learn more about our history. And I know that you folks have put an awful lot of work into uh, this work, this research in today's session. Um, so without further ado, folks, over to you. I'll, I'll start. Um, hi, everyone. 
I'm Marina. Um, I think what Meredith was going to do was welcome everyone. And this is a great collaboration uh, between Sophie and Rogare, who've been exploring the history of fundraising and sharing lots of examples. Um, we're going to start today with a sort of a talk, a provocation, a moment from Rodri, um, looking at the history of fundraising. And then each member of the panel is going to chip in uh, something as well. Uh, and then we welcome your questions. And we've got a timeline and uh, more history to share with you. Uh, but let's start, Rodri, with you. Great. Thanks, Marina. And I hope everybody can hear hear me. Um, I'm sure. Yeah, brilliant. Um, yeah, as, as Marina said, uh, I can't see all of you, but it's delightful to know that, that everyone's there. And I'm really pleased to be here to talk about one of my favourite subjects, which is uh, the history of fundraising and the kind of broader history of charity. Um, it's something I've got a long-standing interest in myself, uh, to the extent of having written a couple of books about it and even running an entire uh, Twitter account dedicated to the history of philanthropy. So I obviously think it's interesting for its own sake, um, but I also think it's a historical perspective is really um, valuable for practitioners and for people sort of more broadly in the world of fundraising and philanthropy, um, policymakers and commentators and others. And, and I try to do my best to kind of bring that historical perspective to everything that I do in various different ways, some of which are serious and meaningful and others of which are much sillier. Um, but, and what I wanted to do really was just give some thoughts to frame the conversation today about the ways in which I think a historical perspective can have value. And all of what I'm going to say applies kind of more broadly, I think, to charity and philanthropy as well as fundraising. But one of the really interesting things about this event and the sort of wider initiative that, that Sophie is doing around the history of fundraising to me is it's often one of the bits that gets left out in that wider history, I think. I think the history of philanthropy is very often the history of kind of notable individual figures or big foundations and institutions. Um, but we tend to hear less about the people doing the asking. Um, and maybe that's to do with, you know, their relative positions in terms of the power that they had at the time. And maybe it's because a lot of what fundraising is about is often kind of ephemeral and so doesn't really get recorded in the same ways. Um, I'm probably not going to give as many examples as, as everyone else, partly because I know they've got some great examples to share with you, but also because if I did, I'd probably be here for about two hours. Um, so I will just give some thoughts, as I say, on that framing. Uh, the first thing I wanted to say about why I think historical perspective is is so useful is I think there's there's a sense in which understanding continuity is really valuable and, and reinsure, reassuring and kind of comforting. I think that sense that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and, and a part of something a lot bigger than ourselves. Personally, I really like that feeling, um, particularly when it comes to kind of grappling with some of the difficult issues about how to do fundraising and philanthropy or some of the ethical questions it throws up. I think knowing that lots of very smart people before us, you know, lots of writers and poets and artists and people involved in in fundraising have thought about them and said interesting things. Uh, that to me is really useful. So it's kind of good to know what, what they've said because it can really inform our thinking today. I think the other obvious point about that continuity is having a stock of inspiring historical examples to draw draw on in terms of the individual stories of organizations and fundraisers and donors, um, I think is a good reminder of the power and potential of philanthropy and fundraising when it's done well, you know, at a time when often there is a lot of critique about it and it's easy to kind of fall into being quite negative. Um, I think there are some some more sort of specific things as well that we can, we can learn from history. Um, and I think this is the point at which to say we have to be a bit careful about assuming history is, you know, a clear and infallible guide to anything in the present. 
Um, it isn't. It's a useful uh, tool and it can really inform our thinking. But you do have to also be very careful to take into account uh, context and understanding, um, you know, which bits of history meaningfully relate to the present and which might not. But I think we can learn things about what to do and what we might want to do in the present. So we can find specific examples of, of approaches that were used in the past to fundraising or to, to philanthropic giving that we might have forgotten about, to be honest, and we can take elements from those and use them in the modern context. And I think we're going to hear some great examples of that kind of thing um, in a little bit. I think we can also importantly learn quite a lot about what not to do. Um, I think one of the good things about having a historical overview is you get the benefit of hindsight. And so you can see where unintended negative consequences have played out and it can allow us to have a better chance maybe of un identifying where we might be in danger of making the same mistakes uh, in the present and I think you know maybe I can talk a bit more later about some specific examples where I think you know that that particular value comes to the forefront. I think another place that I find a historical perspective endlessly useful is in assessing claims of novelty I know in, in the philanthropy world and certainly in fundraising, you, you can barely move for claims people are made that, you know, X or Y thing is new and unprecedented. And actually, when you dig into the history a little bit, you suddenly start to realize that very few things are genuinely new. A lot of it's cyclical. A lot of it has been sort of tried in one way or another before, which is not to downplay what we're doing in the present and, and the kind of uh, the joy that can be had from rediscovering some of these things. But it does slightly let, let you get away from the shiny new thing syndrome. Um, and I think, you know, conversely, understanding historical context maybe allows us to know when something genuinely is new and to be excited about that and to celebrate it. I think another thing that history allows us to do is to, to look at things from a kind of broader perspective and understand, again, going back to that idea that things are cyclical, where there are key recurring themes and big questions and ones that have always kind of arisen when we're thinking about charity and philanthropy and fundraising and and what's really useful about that i think is it allows you to pick out the elements of current debates that maybe are the meaningful deep questions and maybe identify the ones that are more just kind of short-term uh, things that we probably need to to pay less attention to and I think, you know, there's some great examples here I've certainly found through my own work in terms of those big themes and questions. Just just a few examples I'll throw out. The whole question of what we should do with tainted donations or kind of ethically questionable sources of money is one that endless numbers of fundraisers today find themselves faced with. But you're very far from the first people to have grappled with that. And you can look back, you know, all the way through the writings of Thomas Aquinas and the Venerable Bede through to the work of the abolitionist Frederick Douglass and the plays of George Bernard Shaw. And you can find some really kind of sophisticated thinking about the challenges of whether or not to, to take bad money and try and turn it to good purposes. Um, I think also, you know, a question that we're grappling with a lot today about whether or not charity should distinguish between deserving or undeserving recipients and the challenges that throws up. You can barely move when you look at Victorian philanthropy and its history for people kind of trying to grapple with that question. Um, and similarly, I think other big debates at the moment about the ways in which philanthropy relates to things like justice and whether philanthropy is a good tool for furthering justice or whether it's actually something that gets in the way of it. This is a, a question that writers and uh, political scientists and philosophers have grappled with for hundreds of years. And, you know, again, 
often we come to these things thinking we need to come up with the answers for ourselves, but there's a huge amount of thinking to draw on. And um, I guess that related to that, another thing I think is really useful is I mentioned that kind of wider perspective on themes. I think the other thing that taking a historical perspective quite often makes you realize in a way that is reassuring is that sometimes issues around philanthropy and fundraising can seem as if they're quite niche. You know, they're only something that's of interest to people within those worlds. But actually, when you look from a historical point of view, they've often been pretty central to debates about society as a whole, and people have taken them very seriously. And so actually, I think it gives us a sense in which what we do and the things that we're thinking about, you know, do have much more importance beyond the worlds and the sort of small circles that we often operate in. I think history also is very useful, um, sometimes in its own right, but also as a lens for bringing in other perspectives. So often history is a good starting point to bring in things like economics or politics or uh, theology or lit literature or, or cultural um, theory as well. Uh, and so I think it kind of offers a way of addressing the fact that philanthropy is something that kind of cuts across lots of different disciplines because it touches on so many uh, elements of the human experience. I think just just a couple of other things that I'll throw in and then I'll, I'll hand over. Um, one is, I think, that history is really useful when it comes to taking a deep dive into specific individual organizations and institutions. Um, so understanding how particular institutions or laws or rules or practices that we have have come about, I think gives us a much better way, a sense of understanding their modern role and what it is that justifies them and, you know, where they might be good and where they might be uh, not so good. So again, you know, I think it's very difficult for people to understand debates about the, you know, the, the controversy over the National Trust without understanding where that institution came from and the fact that the the question of whether its role is to preserve things in aspic or whether it's to try and uh, maximize access to them have been around for hundreds of years um, since the beginning. Similarly, I think understanding where the rules around tax relief on donations have come from, it's very badly understood and it leads to a lot of confusion in the present. So I think understanding that is, is really important. Then the final two things, one is that link to that Unfortunately, history does get used a lot as a tool to kind of weaponize debates about philanthropy by people who might want to push negative narratives about it. And I think understand it's important that we therefore understand that history ourselves so that we can counter some of those narratives uh, and say where they might be misguided. And then I think the final thing I wanted to say is just when you look at history, one of the things that becomes clear is often there are lots of voices and perspectives left out of that history because they just weren't the ones that were captured at the time. And understanding that that happens at all points throughout history might give us a better chance of understanding which voices and perspectives are being left out currently from our understanding of fundraising and our understanding of philanthropy. And so we might be able, hopefully, to kind of address that and ensure that we take a more broad-based, equitable view of, of some of these issues. And so I think those are just some of the things that I think are really valuable, but I'd love at this point to turn over to uh, to my fellow, fellow panelists. So I think we'll have lots of kind of specific examples of, of this in a fundraising context. Yeah, um, thank you, Rodri. Um, that was a really helpful way to kick things off. Um, and uh, we're gonna hear from each of our panelists in turn. Um, and I hand over first to Giovanna. 
Thank you, Meredith, and uh, hi, everyone, and thank you for having me in this event and uh, all, to all of you that are joining it uh, right now. I am uh, Giovanna Bonora. I have been a fundraiser for more than 20 years now, and um, I don't know why, but I'm still very much in love with fundraising after all these years, uh, pretty much as I'm still in love with history since I had my classical study a very long time ago, as you can easily guess. So uh, the combination of the history uh, of uh, fundraising history by Rogare was kind of irresistible to me. So that, this is why I'm here today. Uh, I share my home country, Italy, with uh, Cicero, Cicerone, uh, the Roman statesman and scholar who once uh, wrote that history is or should be the teacher of life. But to me, history is not only about uh, lessons learned, it's more about uh, debunking myths. Uh, Roger said it very well before. Uh, you will not easily, I think, uh, use the word innovation anymore. Uh, once you found out how many uh, cool ideas were invented by our ancestors in the Middle Age, if not before Christ. And also, again, as Roger pointed out before, I think it should be about decolonizing our society today and enlightening our privilege. Uh, as a non-Anglo-Saxon, but still a European, I feel wholly half entitled to advocate for that for a more equitable narrative of fundraising and history of fundraising as well. But still, uh, I like to remember that when I did my first reading uh, about fundraising, I was told that, that fundraising and philanthropy were born somewhere in the USA, somewhere near Boston during the late 19th century. But uh, then moving on with my readings, uh, uh, which included, of course, a lot of Roger's stuff, and doing um, some, uh, some research on my own, I could easily find out that uh, giving and asking people to give uh, is a long-standing tradition across all cultures. And uh, I feel that we Europeans are still pretty much Eurocentric uh, in history as in any other aspects. But, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, just to name a few religions I got study a little, they put giving and asking at the very heart of the society uh, well before we can claim ourselves being the trailblazers or the pioneers uh, on that. So I think that decolonizing the history of fundraising uh, philanthropy could pave the way to decolonize the sector itself as uh, uh, I think that Edgar Villanueva and many others are advocating for these times. So I'm not here today to shout out that we Italians, and you may know how much we Italians love to shout, uh, were the first in, um, in fundraising. But still, uh, since we all know that Italians do it better, um, well before the 19th century and well before Madonna's t-shirt, I can share with you some examples from uh, the history of Italy, thanks to a book by uh, Professor Melandri and Professor Farofi, fundraising in Italy, uh, history and perspectives. So you may not know that in the 13th and 14th century, bankers in Florence, Tuscany, they regularly transferred a percentage of their revenues uh, into a bank account that was registered to someone who was named Mr. God. Yes, Mr. God. Uh, that was made in order to give that money to the poor because they were considered the representatives of God on earth. So to me, that was uh, uh, more of a frontline ESG policy, if I can say more than a simple corporate uh, philanthropy uh, historical episode. So if bankers were 
pretty good uh, givers, preachers, uh, were among the best fundraisers. Uh, and I like to, to, to remember Saint Bernardino of Siena, San Bernardino da Siena. He was an Italian preacher. He was born uh, 1380. And uh, he assumed that charity was good for the donor's health. And he did it well before uh, the recent neuroscience theories uh, that uh, applied to fundraising highlighted how the act of giving is good for the person who is giving because it activates the release of the feel-good hormones like dopamine or oxytocin. So well done, Bernardino. And again, uh, talking about gaming or gamification uh, that uh, have been quite recently a kind of a hot trend for fundraising, just think that the game of Lotto, something similar to the lotteries, uh, is still existing in Italy. And it was invented to support the girls in need in Naples in the 17th century. It was named, it was called the game of the girls from Naples. Uh, I could give you many other examples, including uh, alternative social finance tools that already uh, took place during the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, But I'm really happy to leave the floor now to Asma. Uh, that will share with you more stories from quite a similar perspective. So thank you, and over to you, Anna and Mar- Asma and Meredith. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, and and we're now going to hear from Asma, who's going to pick up on some of those themes that Giovanna was just speaking about. Cool. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Giovanna. Um, and yeah, um, hello everyone. So I'm Asma. Um, I'm from a freelance fundraising. From the freelance fundraising world currently but my background i've been working in fundraising mostly for uh, in the art sector for over 10 years um and touching on some of the things that giovanna mentioned especially around some of the world's big religions and philanthropy it did get me thinking when i was researching for the, this uh panel um the things around power and influence that we hold as fundraisers and i think examples from religion show just exactly how immense that power can be to solicit funds um one of the examples i was reading about um was from like the jewish and christian faiths and they both cite charity um as a virtuous act um whereas in islam uh, which is my religion we have zakat which is one of the five pillars of islam where you're duty bound to give a certain percentage of your earnings um disposable income um, in charity or as a redistribution of wealth. Um, power can be good and bad. Um, it all depends on how we use it and how we're held to account. One of the examples I came across in bad use of power um, was in from and up until the 1500s, uh, the church would encourage very rich people to absolve their sins by giving large donations to the church. Martin Luther came along in the 1500s and said, quite rightly, that's not on. Um, closer to home, growing up um, in a small town, my parents would regularly make their donations to the mosque. Um, and those same mosque volunteers, not long afterwards, would be driving around in town with really fancy cars. And having prayed that the Lord gives them a Mercedes Benz, they got one. Uh, but power and influence can also be wielded for good, and especially where there is accountability to the communities that we serve as fundraisers. Um, and accountability that we hold funders towards uh, to. Um, so in 2020, as the pandemic hit, I 
that's when I accidentally became a freelance fundraiser. That came about working with individual artists um, who wanted to raise money for the work they wanted to do during uh, during the lockdowns. Uh, one of the projects was an R&D project with a group of visual artists who were racially minoritized. We got funding from Arts Council England to look at some of the visual artists working in Britain from the 1960s onwards. Um, when it came to those same artists participating in the project, there was a big tension between um, the stories they wanted to share and the histories they wanted to share and the fact that the funding was from Arts Council who because of uh, previous funding decisions and fund uh, uh, grant-making practice um, meant that those artists weren't funded. It was particularly hurtful um, and damaging for Black British artists in the visual arts. Um, and then when it came to doing the end of grant report, we had, as a team, we decided we were going to be quite explicit about that experience with Arts Council. Um, and you know, learning from our elders around what it means to hold power to account and what that looks like and being very clear about what those consequences are. It also meant when it came to doing the National Portfolio Organization funding, um, which I was working on for a Black-led arts organization, there was, again, a very explicit uh, ask for an uplift in funding. Um, based on the fact that that organization had been historically underfunded by the Arts Council because of issues of racism um, and because of words like quality and risk, which aren't neutral. And um, all of this is entangled with our colonial histories and um, how, you know, why, why we have such a diverse range of communities in this country is the direct result of European colonial expansion in our case, British expansion in uh, across Africa, the Caribbean, uh, and uh, South Asia. It also led me to think about examples that are currently live around reparative justice and what we as fundraisers can contribute to that. Um, and there's a beautiful report uh, written by Anupriya and Laura Miller called Voices from the Ground, um, which was commissioned by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. Um, I'll share a link in the chat um, after my presentation, um, which was looking, it, the report follows on from the trust having done an investigation after the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 um, as to the origins of their funds. Um, and the origin of that money is from colonial ex exploits. Um, and how best to distribute that funding across grassroots community organizations that are campaigning for social justice. And this report, Anu um, themselves are uh, fundraising, coming from a fundraising background, um, working with this funder, it's about building the infrastructure and the support for grassroots organizations, especially around fundraising, but also acknowledging the deficit with which they're operating from and that's a generational deficit of having, again, been underfunded, overlooked, oppressed in so many ways. And we all carry that trauma with us. Uh, what's beautiful about the work that Anu and Laura are doing with trust is it's about acknowledging that deficit um, and establishing some infrastructural support and resources where not only are those organizations learning to ask for what they need to do the work well, but are learning to ask for what they need in order to be well, to do that work. 
Um, and that I think that's quite beautiful. And again, it's bringing in histories that aren't just about fundraising and philanthropy, but about money, about capitalism, about those colonial entanglements that we're all living with. Um, and yeah, I would really recommend everyone to have a look at that report to understand where we as fundraisers can hold the powerful to account, can push back to funders, have an honest conversation with them about needs on a very human level. Um, yeah, sorry, that's my rushed presentation. Yeah, um, thank you. That that raises some really important issues, and um, uh, we will look forward to you sharing the link in the chat uh, at the end. Um, but I'm going to hand it over now to uh, Mark. Then, got me. Um, my name is Mark Phillips. Um, I run an agency called um, Blue Frog. Been involved in fundraising. Oh, I don't know, twenty, twenty-six, twenty-seven years. Before then, I used to work at a charity called YMCA, YMCA England. And I'd like to talk a little about the history of, of the YMCA to show how taking a historical perspective um, can actually help us when we are innovating. Um, now, I've got a few slides to come in, and Cara's going to be sharing those um, in a little while. There we go. Um, now, when we develop and um, want to develop new products, um, there's a, a very simple um, product life, life cycle that applies to pretty, pretty much everything. You know, we develop a product, uh, we introduce it, eventually it reaches maturity, and then either we have to innovate and redevelop it, or we just we just let it die. Now, wouldn't it be great when we're developing products if we knew how people might respond to that product, and we knew what problems we'd face um, before we even actually launched it in the market? And this comes is why you need to um, take a look at your history books. Now, if we look at face-to-face -face fundraising, for example, we know that face-to-face, -face, um, well, many people, if you speak to them about face-to-face, -face, it was set up by Greenpeace back in the 1990s. But when we start blowing the dust off those, um, of those history books, we can find out that the YMCA, and this is a YMCA fundraisers pack from about 1880, was doing regular giving way back many, many, many years ago. Now, this was produced for Newcastle YMCA, and they were recruiting regular givers, and they were basically sending people out to see their friends, see their family, and also local dignitaries, and ask them to sign up of a regular gift of about five shillings a week, which is about 25 pence, which is about 25 pounds to them. And they would go out, ask people for money, and they would collect a pledge in that little red and silver wallet. Um, and then they would go back to those people once a year and say, oh, you pledged last year, can we, have, um, can we have the money? Now, that was a great idea, but where could it go next? Now, what I want to do now is I want to jump to the USA, and so let's click on to the next slide. Now, there's two people. There's a person called Charles Sumner Ward and Frank Pierce. They took this idea of regular giving and they really commercialized it. Now, there's an old adage in the YMCA. When you start there, the first job you've got to do is raise your own salary. Now, everyone, um, obviously, when you work at a charity, you want to get out and do the real work. That's why we have fundraisers, so that the people with those skills can concentrate on that. Now, they came up with the idea of the lightning canvas, and it was, it was very similar to that Newcastle idea. But the idea was that we were going to be going out and we were going to be fundraising for the whole year over the course of a, of, a, of a week or two. And they used lots of new ideas to try 
and make that fundraising um, um, more, more effective. Now, what you can see here is from New York, the fundraising clock. That was an early totalizer um, that people could use to show how much we need to raise and how well we'd done. But they also used loads of other techniques like civic pride, giving people an, an opportunity to show off. When they launched the campaign, um, they would launch with publicity materials. And there's one where there's a picture of um, uh, John um, and Delano Rockefeller, J.D. Rockefeller, who's giving 100,000. But also next to him is a photograph of a little um, a, a newspaper seller who's giving a dollar. So it was this idea that it's a big target, but everyone can play their, um, and play their role. Now, the Americans really developed this idea, and then we brought it back to the, U um, uh, back to the UK. What Charles Sumner did is refine and refine this approach um, over different YMCA's in, 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 in different cities and created this thing called the, um, and called the Lightning Canvas. And if we can just skip on to the next slide. And these are some of the materials that were produced back in, you know, over, over 100 years ago. And what you can see on that right-hand side is a donation form. It's a donation form um, to get people to give a regular gift, which they rebranded as the instalment system. And over there on the left-hand side, you can see the face-to-face -face fundraisers that were going out. Because what Charles um, um, did was rather than leave us to focus on those people that we, um, that we know and those friends, what he did was actually say, look, there's loads of people out in the street. If we can publicize this and get everyone interested in it, we can ask everyone for money. And that is what they did. They used new technology like printing. They used the electric light bulb to illuminate these, these signs to get people engaged um, and, um, and involved. And did it work? Next slide, please. And um, what happened is um, when it was first launched in the UK, people thought, yeah, this is great. This is a good idea. Um, because it was, it was a big idea, fame was important but it also understood how people thought and they took advantage of that. But what happened when these campaigns started? Next slide. It annoyed people. And that's the problem, that this idea when people were wandering around the streets being asked for money constantly, they were described as in almost like modern day highwaymen, this idea of your money or of, or, of your life or, or your life campaign. And that's very similar to obviously how the newspapers packaged up chuggers um, a few years ago. So these are all things that we can learn from. It's not just about how we can develop that idea, but also what happens when we get negative publicity. Um, that, some knowledge from our history book shows us that that is going to happen. But what happened once this idea got a little bit boring was again, it was reinvented. And if we move on to the, um, onto the next slide, um, Flag days came out of this idea of how we can use how we could use the public space for fundraising. And you've got instances of loads of people queuing up to buy these flags to show off about the charities that they supported. But again, if you read those quotes that you've got, uh, you've got there again, it sort of overloaded um, the market. Everyone started to get, get annoyed. And what happened, rules and regulations were brought in place to actually stop these public collections. So that's another learning. How do we keep the authorities um, on site? But of course, there were other directions as well. The Salvation Army thought about public spaces in a slightly different way. They thought about the fact, could we go to churches? 
And I don't know if any of you uh, know much about the Salvation Army, but they have things people called legacy pastors, face-to-face fundraisers that go around the legacy churches, uh, go around the churches and highlight the importance of of legacies and try to get people signed up to give money on, on, a, on a face-to-face basis. So that's pretty much it from me. And um, the fact is that, as uh, Roger said, all these products and ideas that we're developing today, they've already been done. People have made the mistakes. They've got the learning. So rather than just going out and remaking those mistakes ourselves, let's see what we can learn from the um, history books and um, come up with great products that hit the market with all the problems solved before we even start. That's it from me. Thanks very much indeed. Super. Thank you. Um, I think uh, we can all agree that there's a lot that we can learn from our past. And um, Marina, who's going to uh, speak next, has been uh, sharing on her own blog. And then some of that has been reposted on Sophie's blog recently. Um, uh, many interesting lessons from uh, the, our past in history. Uh, so over to Marina. Thanks, Meredith, and hi, everyone, and thanks for joining. Um, It's fascinating, I find it, to think about uh, the history of fundraising and how it applies to how and why we approach fundraising today. Uh, Mark mentioned just there, Pierce, who's one of the kind of founding fathers, um, and he had something called a flinch system, which is you kept asking for a bigger donation until you saw your donor flinch. Um, So I think it's just fascinating to think of the different ways that new technologies come into what we're doing and how we do it. Um, 1858 is the first example I found um, of a before and after photo. Um, So Dwight L. Moody, who was a fundraiser again for the YMCA and other charities in the US, um, supported uh, some young men and took a picture of them before and after with the quote, does it pay? Yes, it does, to show and demonstrate the impact of what that gift could do. I think one of the things I find really interesting about looking at the history of fundraising is we, we've done it the same way in, in an awful lot of ways for over 2000 years from uh, sort of Pliny writing uh, letters to get other supporters to, do, to join him, join me, I've given money, please join me and support this, that kind of social norming um, ask that we see and that we kind of recommend to people uh, as a great way of doing it. All of these things are now kind of better understood as we know more about behavioral science and what's happening in our brains when we're being asked for money, how um, we can watch in an MRI scanner, what's happening when we're being asked for money and how it brings us joy, how we're thinking about uh, the rewards that it it gives the fundraiser, it gives the donor. Um, But all of these things have been done because we know how how brains work, Uh, but people understand people and we're already just understanding that why now. But there are just so many interesting kind of tidbits of why things worked. Um, I've got quite a few crazy animal ones, which I always think are quite fun. Um, there was a girl who taught her parrot to say, put a coin in the box, put a coin in the box. So, uh, and there was a dog that used to have a donation box strapped to its back and walk around or to the station. There are all sorts of fun and innovative ways that people have brought fundraising to life to engage donors and supporters. Uh, But I think there's also a sort of challenge as we kind of gather those things together. It is a very kind of um, weird, Western, educated, uh, industrialized um, understanding of what fundraising is, how we kind of um, perpetuate um, that sometimes in our understanding and how we gather that information, because we're we're not looking at sort of uh, cultures and traditions where fundraising wasn't 
you know, uh, purely financial or wasn't um, a, a particularly written culture. So looking at how we can um, to bring different stories into that mix and different traditions of what fundraising looks like. Um, and there's some really big kind of ethical things as you go through looking at the history of how people did things and, you know, whether they should, you know, there were a lot of, you know, you've got to give money to, you know, stop these poor people rioting. So it's a really kind of scared mentality to supporters and as, as a way of trying to generate funds um, and how you um, used people's um, lived experience. Um, there was a, um, a member of the Mahagan tribe who was converted to Christianity and then sort of sent on a fundraising tour to be a, a demonstrator of what uh, the missions to the uh, to civilize the Indians would do. So there's all sorts of questions around how we should approach these things and what we can learn from history. Um, we, um, with the team, have been together working uh, with Regari to put a timeline of different fundraising things, which is uh, to be there to explore, to ask questions, to think about what's missing and what can be added. Um, and thank you to Mark and Blue Frog who've been supporters of, of that. Um, we'll share in the chat a link to that. Um, it's the the first one uh, just looks at the 20th century, but we're going back to antiquity and we'll be adding themed ones about fundraising firsts. And even in putting the timeline together, the debates between us all of this is the first charity single. No, this is the first charity single, or this is the first time that um a sponsor of this was made or the first time that a match fund was asked for there is so much uh to learn and to think about and also just to inspire how you approach fundraising and use those things from the past to inform what you're doing um i'm gonna hand back to meredith um and we can take your questions yeah, um, thank you so much. And um, I have to apologize. I had some technical issues at the beginning. So you'll just have to trust me that I gave an amazing introduction that no one was able to hear. Um, but I will um, introduce myself briefly now that um, I think my sound is working. Um, I'm Meredith Niles, and I'm the chair of a charity called Sophie, which is the Showcase of Fundraising Inspiration and Innovation. And we are a free resource for fundraisers to help them be more effective in their jobs. Part of what we do is sharing lessons from fundraising's history, um, and that's why we were really interested in working with Regare on um, showcasing the work that they're doing um, to, uh, you know, service some of these things. Because I think, as we've just heard, um, there's so much that we can learn from what's gone before, and if we can avoid um, making expensive mistakes that other people have made, then why wouldn't we want to do that? Um, so I, I'm really pleased um, that uh, Fundraising Everywhere was able to host us today and looking forward to uh, taking your questions. Um, the first one that I thought we'd start with is um, one to the group and, um, you know, maybe just uh, hold up your hand if you want to come in on this. But um, as you've been spending time reflecting on fundraising's history, maybe you could share with us um, what you think is the most interesting insight uh, that you've gained from looking at this. Uh, I, I'll start. I think one thing I find interesting is is how little it's changed. Um, I suppose pe people are asking people for money and for help, and the ways in which we do that as a society haven't changed a lot uh, in in lots of ways. Um, I think the the donation boxes that were in uh, the Jewish temple um, had sort of designated pots, so you could choose where your gift went. And we know today still people want to give to a thing. They want to know my money's going to to help the orphans or the lepers uh, in, in the temple context rather than uh, well, 
still need help today, but that people want to have that agency and choice over how they make donations. So I think part of what I've learned is 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 how little has changed, but it, it's very inspiring to see some of those things. Uh, I think the other thing is fundraising advice. Um, there's a 14th century, 22 sample letters written by Cistercian monks about how to write fundraising letters, 22 sample different versions of your letter. Um, so some of those things that we might think of are a particular uh, thing from the last sort of 50 or 60 years have been around for a really, really long time. Um, and it's the same advice that we get now. Well, if I can add to that, uh, to me, the, the most powerful insight, um, pretty much like also Asma pointed out uh, before, it, it was finding out this uh, inner relation uh, between power, wealth and philanthropy as something so universal in time and space that I didn't really imagine. Uh, I can mention maybe the, the, the Indian emperor Ashoka that we all know. Uh, it was the, the best known uh, example of uh, patronage in, uh, in Buddhism, but there are so many, so, so many more also before him. Yeah, Rodri. Um, I think the, the one that I would, I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of sort of drown, drowning in possibilities for answering this. But the, the the thing, the one that struck me most, I think, was when I hit on looking thematically at the history of disaster relief funds, because it, it runs back so far and so much of what you find resonates with the present. So you go all the way back to looking at the system of charitable briefs that people used to issue following things like the Great Fire of London. Uh, and these would be kind of temporary fundraising campaigns designed to to raise money and then you kind of move forward a bit and you have lots and lots of these around things like industrial disasters collieries and, and things like this and the lancashire cotton famine and the tools that they were using seem really a bit innovative so they would do things like publish lists of donors and non-donors from a local area in national newspapers to kind of name and shame who was or wasn't giving they'd make sure they put the names of local dignitaries and sort of well-known people right at the top of the lists of subscribers so that people would feel kind of compelled to get their names on alongside them and they'd also appeal internationally so you look at the lists of who gives to to things like the lancashire cotton famine and money's coming from kind of hong kong and america and south africa and all, all of these different places so it sort of shows that actually the world of fundraising has been global for a lot longer than we think but also you see the, the dark sides of it so you see you know the, the issues that come when you sometimes raise lots and lots of money in a very short space of time and then don't necessarily think about how you're going to distribute it which i think really has resonance you know these days when often you see kind of crowdfunding campaigns go to scale enormously quickly and then you find issues after the event so so i think there's a huge amount we can learn from that great thank you um we had a question uh, from the audience about uh examples of the biggest brief flops in history um things that we should all avoid uh i i want uh, Lone Bear, do you have anything you'd like to share on that one? Um, I was reading about an, an 1820s, 29 campaign in America. Um, and they basically, the solicitor and the agents just went round and sort of just left the book with a sort of, please, could you think about writing? The, there was no sort of ask. It was just sort of left there. Um, and they had these grand ambitions for what this sort of fundraising target uh would generate and it generated sort of nothing because there wasn't actually a proper ask or a kind of case for support or any kind of you know all the things that we know worked um so 
yeah, I think that that that's one of the ones that that springs to mind of this sort of grand ambition and big campaign, um, but without the the forethought to go through. I think the other was there was a big Mary Seacole fundraising benevolent um, concert um, that was supposed to generate lots of money because when she came back from the Crimean War and she was declared bankrupt and the army and the world wanted to sort of thank her for everything she'd done. But it was so badly organized, she ended up with sort of no money and they spent all the money on, you know, moving the marching bands around and and the entertainment. Um, So just a a good lesson in sort of proper events planning to, to raise the right amount of funds. Great. Um, and Mark, there are some uh, what not to do is race and history. Um, the, uh, the the key thing I was saying is that I think if, if, if you basically ask people who care about the cause for the money, you're never going to fail. But the, and it goes back to the point that Marina, I, I think, said about those people who delivered the book. And it's with some of the, and this won't be a surprise to anyone, some of the more modern style branding campaigns, which have been copied. Um, from the commercial world, which literally goes out and says, this is who we are. This is what we do. Um, and, uh, and don't think about how they would transfer that into or translate that into an ask in the right way. Um, uh, if I've, I've actually written, I did a long, um, a very long presentation on this. Um, it's on my blog, queerideas.co.uk, if you want to see it. And I've got some examples of how people have spent quite a lot of money on 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 new brands, and how it has uh, absolutely failed. I won't mention any names today. I, I just I was going to come in very quick. I mean, firstly, you started to Marine's point because that was that was the first one that came to mind for me. It was um, a guy called Matthew Carey um, with his politely leaving books, and I just I actually happened to have the quote from um, from what he wrote afterwards, which I just think is worth reading. He says. Um, his his final paragraph goes, this experiment was tried for 20 days and a half. In the last four days, there were but $12 received. And on the last day, there was but a single dollar collected, which was not sufficient to pay the collector. It was then surely time to abandon the plan as hopeless. So, you know, they, they did have a kind of wash up meeting at the end of it. And they decided that it was all a terrible idea because it turns out doing fundraising without actually asking anybody anything doesn't work very well. Um, the only other one I was just going to throw in because I was thinking of it as, as an example of what not to do. There's a great article I came across, um, a really long sort of angry article in the newspaper titled Dancing Philanthropy. And it's basically this long screed about how it had become too commonplace to hold big, expensive dance events that were very nice and everybody really enjoyed them. But they were so expensive and extravagant, they didn't actually end up raising very much money for charity. So I think that kind of concern about prioritizing the experience of the people, you know, uh, giving the money versus actually raising as much money as possible for the cause is something that's always been there. And there's some quite bad examples of it going wrong. Super. Well, I, I'm conscious that we're um, coming up uh, at the end of our time. So maybe if we just finish by uh, asking each of you to share a resource, um, a book, an article, a case study, um, something that you think the audience could benefit from uh, exploring a little bit further. Um, and Giovanna, I'll start with you. Yes, uh, I mentioned it before, and I'm sorry, it's only in Italian. I'm going to share the link here for you. And uh, it's about the history of uh, fundraising uh, in uh, in Italy, as I mentioned before. Uh, but I'd be happy to, to write a, a short blog in English about it after this uh, this event, if you'd like to. Super. Um, 
Asma, do you have a resource um, that you would like to share? We've got the link to the um, Joseph Browntree uh, report. Thank you, Meredith. Um, yeah, definitely the report. Um, and in terms of history, I'd recommend a book not to do with fundraising, but a big part of why I fundraise, and I know many fundraisers fundraise, is to bring about a world, reimagine the world, or bring about a world that's more uh, equitable and fair and in my case, um, particularly, I'd like a world that's a lot less racist. Um, and there's a brilliant book called The Dawn of Everything, written by David Graeber and David Wengro. And it's all these um, examples from history from thousands and thousands of years ago about the different ways societies have been ordered and put together. Um, and the fact that just because society is one way that we know it, there's no reason why it can't be another way. Um, so as inspiration as to why we keep doing what we do, the dawn of everything, reimagined world. Brilliant. I would, Mark, do you want to share something? Um, this, this is one of my favourite fundraising books. It's from the 1980s, um, Designs for, for Fundraising. has a wonderful line. Um, it's, uh, there's a piece in there about an anthropologist who was working with the First Nation group in, um, in Canada. And she came up with this line that, at the end of the day, we all want to be valued members of the valued group. And that became part of the Blue Frog credo, really, still is, that, that that is why we give and that is how we need to be treated. And I think if that, uh, if that is, uh, um, uh, if, if, if there's one thing that I've taken from all my studies, it's, it's that line. Um, somebody's just asked if I have a link. Sadly, no, it's, um, it's out of print, but, uh, if you can get hold of it on Abe Books or something like that, do do try and track it down. It is a is a great great book. Super, um, Roger, do you want to share um, any? Yeah, I will. I'll do. Well, I'll do a very self interested one or a couple of self interested ones first, which is um, a couple of books that I've written. Uh, so there's, I think I've got copies of them here, which probably won't come up. There's Public Good by Private Means, which is about history of philanthropy in Britain, uh, and the one that's just come out, which is called uh, Oh, there we go. What is uh, philanthropy for? Which I can't. There we go damn blurred background um the other thing is obviously um i run there's a twitter uh, account that i run called philiteracy which is basically a place that i just collect together interesting things about the history of charity and philanthropy so you can trawl through that and there's all kinds of things and then the non-self-interested one i'll promote somebody else's stuff my favorite book i think about the history of of fundraising is a book um by a couple of academics sarah roddy julie murray strange and uh, bertram tate called the charity market and humanitarianism in britain 1870 to 1912, um, which, you know, the, the academic title there is as snappy as you'd expect, but it belies the fact that it's a really fascinating look at how in that period, charities actually kind of pioneered a lot of techniques that went ahead of what the commercial sphere was doing and that actually they kind of led the way in, in some really interesting ways. And there's lots of stuff about the Salvation Army and others and, and their kind of innovative approaches to fundraising. Uh, and even better, I think you can read it for free on the link I shared through um, Bloomsbury Open Access as well. So I'd really recommend that. Brilliant. Rena, have the final word. Um, yep. Uh, I've been trying to collect some examples. So if you go to marinajones.uk, I've been blogging about various history things and trying to sort of share some examples, but also compare them with how it could actually impact practice now. Um, I'd also be a big shout out to the Sophie website, best for inspiration of uh, history. Um, 
and the Rabare site where we're sharing lots of this history timeline. Um, and just to stay curious because it's something that's not written down and you find it in all sorts of random places, in random museums, uh, walking down the street, you, you see fundraising and history everywhere. So just uh, keep your eyes peeled. Brilliant. Um, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, and uh, we we really appreciate you making the time for this. We obviously care a lot about um, this topic and um, I hope that we've given you some examples of why it makes sense to pay attention to what to for and that and um, you've got some resources in front of you that you can um, explore. We hear from you um, on social media about what you've been reading and um, what you've learned and anyone has ideas that they'd like to share with the broader community. Sophie's always looking for submissions second time. Um, thank you for a wonderful afternoon. Thank you so much for listening to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not share it with a fundraising friend? And if you would like to give us a little like or subscribe, it really helps more fundraisers like you find us. Thank you so much. See you next time.